is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Welcome back to the Stigma Podcast. Uh, We've been talking a lot lately about mental health and about what we can be doing about our own mental health and reducing stigma. And it's got me thinking, what can we do to actually change our brain or can we change our brain? And so I've got a guest today, Dr. Laura Murray from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, who's going to talk to us about brain chemistry and how the things that we say to ourselves, the things that we believe and think lead to chemistry changes in our brain, which lead to emotions, which lead to physical behavior. So I'm excited to really dig into this. Grateful to have her here. So without further ado, Laura, thanks for coming on. Sure. Happy to be here. Yeah. So can you tell our audience a little bit about your bio and background and and how you have found your way into the mental health space? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist by training and Started my career in trauma work, actually, after 9-11 in New York City, and eventually decided to take a lot of my work into low- and middle-income countries. And a lot of my passion has been really trying to figure out ways to teach people how to reach greater masses with mental health and self-help care outside of you know someone who seeks formal therapy. Got it. How do you spend your time day to day? I mean, are you running your own clinic or are you, what's your, what's your day to day like? Yeah. So I'm actually a senior scientist at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. I've always found myself in schools of public health for some reason. So my days look a lot like Skype and Zoom calls, especially in the morning with a lot of low and middle income country groups and Lots of grant writing and paper writing and presentations and conferences and things like that and running my own research projects in different countries and leading different teams and teaching in the field. Gotcha. In a little while, I probably will want to ask you a little bit about the research, but topic of the day with all that's going on is COVID-19 and social distancing and isolation. And I know that you recently wrote some material in the Baltimore Sun about this. And I I really wanted to help our audience understand and kind of make sense of the mental health impacts of being isolated. Yeah. It's very interesting times that we find ourselves in. And it's such a great topic that you're raising because I do think that the mental health impact of what we're going through is probably going to hit all of us in some way, shape, or form at some point. I would just say that, you know, stress during an infectious disease outbreak is so wide and varied across each one of us. So this can include being fearful or worrying about your health, changes in sleeping or eating patterns, difficulty concentrating, lots of us experiencing strained relationships or anger, sort of feeling like we're short-tempered, lots of increases in alcohol or in other drugs, sadness, depression, some even thinking about killing themselves. So the the impact is is quite wide and varied. Isolation certainly has an impact on all of that to the degree that that you can and are able to isolate. So if if people are isolating right now, what can they be doing to 
I guess, manage their mental health and limit the impacts of the isolation from this sort of mandated social distancing? Yeah. Boy, and isn't that such a critical question at this time? (laughs) It's and and the biggest thing that we keep trying to say is we're all in this together and and you know, we're certainly not alone, each of us with managing our our sort of social distancing or what we've now tried to talk about is physical distancing rather than social distancing. Mm Some tips that we would recommend, honestly, the first thing is really still connecting with others. So that gets back to that sort of not social distancing, really, but finding a way that you can connect with others that works for you. It's interesting because each of us are individuals. And for some of us, actually seeing a face even six feet away makes a big difference versus seeing someone on a FaceTime screen or just hearing them through a call or or a WhatsApp thing. So I think finding a way to connect with others and many different others, sometimes it's others that you can really disclose your deepest fears and concerns. And then for others, it's people that might offer humor in a time that we need it. So connecting with others is definitely one way to do that. Some other recommendations that we're making is, you know, sleep, making sure that you have a consistent schedule, bringing activities into your day that that bring you joy or pleasure limiting media is always a good idea things like that so one of the things you mentioned in this article that you wrote you're talking about these internal narratives and stepping back and considering what's trending in our internal narrative and in this idea that if our constant thought is this is bad or what's happening in the world it, that our emotions will follow that and then our behavior will follow those emotions. What, what's sort of the science behind that? Like what, why is it that if we, if we see enough news articles that things are bad, that our behavior will soon follow? Yeah. Well, Stephen, I love that you ask about this because this idea of sort of retraining the brain and what follows is just one of the coolest skills that I've found in psychology. And I happen to use it just about every minute of every day with different things. And it's so powerful. But what you said is exactly right, that this is how we function as human beings, right? That our thoughts are so deeply connected with our emotions and then our behaviors that they're very linked. So if I sit here and say to myself all day, everyone's going to, tons of people are going to die. You know, my family's going to get really sick that is going to automatically trigger in my brain chemically in the amygdala. I mean, we see it in chemicals and structures in our brain an emotional reaction that's quite intense. And then my behavior is going to follow. So my heart rate's going to go up. I'm going to feel, you know, uncomfortable. Some of us get GI symptoms. There might be other types of things. And then you're, that's when you start seeing the anger and the agitation or for some of you that might be homeschooling like I am, all of a sudden you find yourself yelling at your kids because they can't figure something out. And so what's what's great about this skill is, is if we are able to change that thought, not necessarily to something so crazy positive because it's hard to do that given the situation hasn't changed, but even something a little bit different. Like, you know, a lot of people are probably going to die, but at least right now my family's safe and healthy, or at least I have good health care or a doctor I can count on or something like, you know, I'm worried about this, but I can't control it today. So what I want to spend my energy on is spending time with my family. 
So even that slight change, which sounds silly, right? Given the context, it's amazing what it does to your brain chemistry and how your emotions follow and then how your behaviors will change. You know, it's funny you say that because I was in rehab and uh, in 2018, and one of the things my small group leader had us do every day was read out loud to ourselves 100 affirmations. And for maybe the first four or five weeks I was there, every, I mean, twice a day, she would tell me to do this. And I just remember thinking, this is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is so stupid, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then I tried it. And I was just amazed. I mean, how much better you feel. I mean, it sounds, it sounds wacky, but it, it really does impact you to just change your vocabulary and change what, how you see the world and what you're saying, even if you don't believe it. Absolutely. And you know what's so cool, Stephen, is that, you know, in our brain research, what it actually shows is if you think about your brain as sort of honing down pathways, you know, creating different pathways that are more familiar, just like when we learn a language, you know, those new pathways are, are um, driven into our brain. That's what's happening. And then your brain automatically goes that way. It's like a groove you've created. And it goes that way instead of to the negativity. So it is, it's, it sounds crazy, though. A lot, I have to say a lot of what we do in our field just sounds like silliness. And then you do it and you're like, wow, this, this, it seems so silly or simple, but it actually works. One of the things I saw in the op-ed was that, you know, certain things, even binge watching Netflix can be healthy right now. And I know that (laughs) that's, it's so, it's such a catchy thing to say. I think, I guess that's the way to say it because you, we talk a lot about how too much TV or, or a, technology addiction or all these, these like our tech and our social media and our media platforms can be addictive and they can be bad for us. But it sounds like in a time like this, they can be potentially healthy for us. Yeah. I think the bottom line is we have to do things that bring us pleasure or joy. And again, this is so individual for each of us, right? For some of us, for example, for myself, cooking brings me absolutely no joy. It's just not something <laughs> I do with joy. And for other people, that is something they love and they love to do it. And so really it's about knowing yourself well enough to know what brings you joy. And I think for some people watching, for a lot of people, watching a show just really allows them to escape and brings joy. I think if you really want to get into the weeds about it, we do work with individuals then to say, do you need to know what you're watching? Are there certain shows you wouldn't watch right now because they're not going to help you? They're not going to bring you joy. So that's really the focus is finding something that brings you joy or pleasure. And again, that affects the brain and your mood and your behaviors. It's funny when I turn on Netflix today or any day this week, it, you know, how it's, it shows the, what people are, tr- it's what's trending, what people are watching. Contagion always comes up for me. Oh. right now. And so <laughs> I'm just kind of like, are people serious right now? <laughs> Contagion and the tiger show. <laughs> yeah. Is- oh, I mean, I, I've watched the, I, I have watched that. And only because every time I open up my phone and open social media, if it's not politics or the market, it's, it's Joe exotic. So exactly. I, mean, I feel like I had to watch it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like I have to imagine that show might have had no eyeballs on it ever if we weren't in this time. I don't know. Right. If we weren't all sitting around watching, like, hmm, what can I see? <laughs> it's like watch well, like the it's like the I guess today's version of Jerry Springer. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing I also have thought about too, like today, okay, today I got this email from the rehab center I went to. And it just said, the subject line just said, we are open. 
And I am thinking that this time that we're in is going to produce a lot of not just mental health struggles, but addiction issues. There's going to be, there's going to be a, a, a need for additional uh, mental health and addiction treatment resources now, but also once all this clears up, because I think that some people will probably cope with a lot of this with substances and they for will sure. need some help getting away from that. Well, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you're right on. A lot of us deal with stress and anxiety with drugs, alcohol, chemicals, things like that. And I and that's really normal. And I think we are going to see an upswing in that. And I, I'm hoping that our substance use fields are thinking forward enough. I love that they sent you an email of we're open and we're we're open. (laughs) Yeah. We can switch to to telehealth and and working with people. I think, you know, one of the things that we really suggest that we're already trying to get people used to, whether you've had an addiction problem or not, one of the best ways to start looking at it and managing it is just to monitor it. So just keep a chart Mm. of how much you're drinking, because a lot of times people don't realize how much they're starting to yeah. drink and how much that may make a difference. And so that's really always the first step is awareness. And so that's what we're trying to get people to do in these early stages is just keep tracking and monitoring. And that will help you sort of realize, do I need to replace it with some other activity or am I going down a road I don't want to be on? Yeah. It's funny when I, when I showed up in rehab, I didn't think I had a problem. <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah. And I remember the first time I sat down with a group of people there and I, I started saying, I mean, I don't really have a problem. I mean, I only, I mean, I didn't drink before 9am or anything. And I wasn't, I mean, I didn't drink on Thursdays and I mean, I, I really wasn't that bad. It wasn't every day. And I just, you could see the looks on people's faces like, dude, you really had a problem because <laughs> like, I never measured it. I, all I measured right. was the unmanageability in my life. Uh, right. and when that got to a point where it almost it threatened my life, that's when I finally got help. So I, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting piece of advice for, I wonder how you get people who aren't aware of a problem or wouldn't consider themselves to have a problem to start tracking that, that behavior. Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Stephen, too, because some people who, you know, a lot of, a lot of people aren't interested in changing it either. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we work on with alcohol and drugs is something we call motivational interviewing, which is not forcing or telling someone, it's really starting to get them to think about the effects. So as you just mentioned, people don't necessarily say, I have, you know, I drink too much alcohol and this is a problem that I want to stop. It's getting them to pay attention to all the other things in their life that maybe aren't going exactly as they want them and linking it to certain behaviors, which could be alcohol. Now, a lot of times people drink alcohol because of another problem. And so there's also times where we revert back to say, okay, let's work on this other problem, which then limits the drinking. So lots of different ways to to get at it. I think just in relation to your question about how do you get people tracking it, this is where I feel like, especially in this time of COVID-19, this is a great way to start reaching out. Reach out to people who you know, may have a problem with drinking or drugs, um, stay connected with them, help them monitor, ask them about it. 
and even your friends, you know, I find myself even checking with our friends of, you know, how much wine are we drinking at night, you guys, because <laughs> if this starts increasing and starts turning into every night, we, we may need to just find something else to do in the evenings. And I think that's just going to be a real struggle for all of us during this time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree. I mean, the, my grocery stores uh, here in Dallas, where I live, they're not, uh, they're not well stocked, but they're not out of too many things, but they are out of booze. Oh, so gosh. <laughs> I, I think that people, yeah, the, the alcoholic in me notices that when I yeah, go to the store. Right. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, I think you alluded to this idea that these neuropathways in our brain can be changed by our, our behavior. And I, that's something I wanted to kind of dig into a little bit more because you, you had mentioned in the article that doing things you like or doing things that have a positive impact on your neurochemistry uh, can reduce stress and reduce anxiety. And I, I wanted to understand a little bit more, maybe at the uh, layman's level, what is that neurochemistry? What's happening in our brain that when we do something positive, it it actually lowers our stress and anxiety? Yeah, it's such a great question, Stephen. So, you know, what's fascinating about human beings is that we think computers are interesting and technology and whatever. And we're super excited about all the advancement. And yet we're walking around with brains that we don't even, the capacity of our brains is just amazing. It's amazing what they do. And that's just, it's something that is so exciting to look at. And so what we do, there's a lot we don't know, but what we do know is, for example, when you do something like exercise, right, your body releases chemicals for example, dopamine or endorphins, and they literally make your brain chemistry change. And then your emotion that follows is more sort of, let's call it just happiness, right? So not only is your brain getting rid of chemicals that don't make us feel very good, but it is adding chemicals that make us feel good, sort of these feel good chemicals. And so you naturally get rid of some of that stress and anxiety and you're feeling more joy or, or happiness. And so do we know the details of all of it? There's a lot of different scientific things we could get into, but I think the basic idea that is great for everyone to know is that even though little things each day feel silly or feel like, what good is this? You know, so I went for a walk for 10 minutes. It's amazing how that's additive over time and really can make big changes in your life. I've seen it. I mean, I let my life get out of control before I finally got help. And I've, I've seen it in my life. And one of the things that really helped me was going to a treatment center and having them explain this to me and then them show me how to behave or act and how to do these things. And then show me how my brain had changed and show me what happened to uh, brain waves in my prefrontal cortex or show me EEG outputs and of how my brain has changed because I did these things. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it is easy for us to say, because we don't understand the brain, that this stuff sounds cheesy, but it's legit. And that's something I really want communicated to people in a way that they can understand that this stuff that people tell you to do isn't just because they're trying to sell you a meditation app. It's because these things positively change the chemistry of your body and your brain and how you, how you experience life. Yeah, that, that is so awesome. And so you actually got to see it. Okay. So I thought meditation was stupid, right? When I went to rehab. And so I sat down in a room and they hooked up this, I, I can't explain it. They hooked this thing up to my brain and it was able okay. to track alpha, theta, gamma, delta waves, I guess. Those are the yep. four. And they said, okay, look, you're in fight or flight already. 
like you don't know that, but the reason you're here is because you live in that state and that's why you do the things you do. And they said, so just do this, take a deep breath. And they just walked me through a five minute breathing exercise and everything had baselined at that point to normal. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this stuff is legit. It actually does something. So I I thought meditation, breathing exercises was stupid until I actually saw the science prove to me that it, it changes what's going on in my brain. That is so awesome that you had that experience. I, you know, and I have to say, even being in this field, there's a lot of things that I feel like are weird and certainly did as I was in training. It's not until you experience some of them that you realize what a difference it can make. There's research now showing that most of us, especially now with technology and how fast things move, our brain is just flipping through so many channels so fast, so often in the day. And it actually doesn't allow the brain to be as productive or creative as it can be. So there's now, we're understanding more and more that those folks that are really great leaders, and visionaries and creative, those are the ones that are actually good at exactly what you're talking about. Meditation, slowing their brain down and allowing it to do what it's supposed to do. You mentioned research here, but you talked about it earlier. And, and I know you've done quite a bit of research as part of your, your day-to-day activities around a, a lot of really interesting things. And I know that you've spent time overseas. I think you had recently returned from Zambia where you were working on, I, as I read, it was like a strategy to, to build, I guess, leaders that, that scale treatments around dealing with the effects of violence and substance abuse. And I was just kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. So a lot of our work is in low and middle income countries where the mental health access is extremely low. And in Zambia, we've, I started actually my career with uh, HIV and the effects of child sexual abuse related to HIV. And so not always a, a very uplifting topic. What's always been great as a psychologist though, and a researcher is that I've also been on the treatment side. So I've been alongside as we've taken, for example, kids that are HIV positive and had been sexually abused and have seen them turn their lives in a completely different direction. And so even though the topic I know sounds daunting and uh, not not a very happy place to be, it's really great to see these lives change. And one of the things in Zambia that we realized after we started working there was that interpersonal violence and substance use were massive problems and problems of much more concern than, for example, people who are depressed. And we work in areas in in Zambia that are very poverty stricken. And so we did a study of a treatment called the Common Elements Treatment Approach, which essentially is able to address a multitude of different problems. So rather than just treating violence or just treating substance use, we were able to treat many different mental health concerns and also work on relationships and things like that. And it was highly effective. And the the challenge in the global space, I would also perhaps argue in the domestic space, is that the ability to access treatments is still quite limited. You have to have money, you have to be as part of a system. Now we're learning a lot about how to do this without actually being face-to-face. And so what we've turned to globally is to really learn how do we train lay providers? So these are people that maybe have a fourth or fifth grade education to do essentially what you would do with a licensed mental health professional here and then train others to do that. So we're studying how to do that via 
via live, via technology and testing all sorts of different ways to see how effective and cost effective it is. Can we take something from that to apply here in the U.S.? I would imagine that if we can teach these lay providers in Zambia how to treat someone, that we could probably teach at least a primary care physician or a nurse practitioner or a school nurse or our neighbor to handle some basic mental health triage and treatment. Is that Can I extrapolate from what you're learning there to something we could do here? Absolutely. I think we're moving in that direction. I will say that we have a lot of laws and regulations that have to do with licensing and healthcare mm-hmm. and things like that, which is probably one of the barriers, biggest barriers that we're still working through domestically to get mental health care provided at that level. And I, I think laws and regulations are also important. So I think there's just sort of a little dance going on in the United States and Europe about how to manage that and not sort of take a healthcare workforce out of existence, so to speak. But what I do love about your question, Stephen, is that something I said at the beginning is one of of my main interests is there's so many people, for example, who just aren't happy. They aren't happy with their workplace, for example. And then if you're not happy in your job, you come home and you're often not a good partner, not a good mom or dad, or not a good friend, and vice versa right? If you're unhappy in a marriage or unhappy with relationships and you don't have social friends, you're often unhappy at work. And I find a lot of day-to-day folks like us don't necessarily need full-on mental health evidence-based treatment. What we need is some of these skills, some of these tools in our toolbox. And that's what I think might be a genius idea is to really merge that out. So I do think there's a real place for highly trained psychiatrists and psychologists for more severe cases that might need full treatment protocols, as we would say. But I think there's so many folks that I look at and think, gosh, you you know, why take your life and not be happy? Why settle? You know, and it sounds like Stephen, you did just that. You, you at some point recognized your life was maybe not going the way you wanted to, and you sort of reset it. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I I was in a really bad place uh, with my addictions, and I I was fortunate to get to rehab in time to for them to save my life. And yes, and it totally revolutionized how I live. I mean, it it I wish I had done it sooner, but I I wouldn't have done it sooner if that makes any sense. I think that people like me that got to where I was have to we're either going to die from it or we're going to live these incredible lives after we recover. There's really no middle ground um, because we have to get to the point where we're totally powerless and, and our life is completely unmanageable and, and we survived and we're willing to ask for help. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a really weird combination to to arrive at. Honestly, it's very rare. And yet so good, right? Now that you're yeah. on the other side of it, you know, and I, and I think that's, what's contagious too is, hearing how much has changed in your life and how much is better. And that's something that I I think all of us should strive for. Even even in the existence of COVID-19, you know, I think I've talked daily to a lot of people who just feel like they have to sort of be in this depressed, anxious, worry state. You still only have one life. You know, you've got to live each day. You want to make it the best you can. So you know, this is, this is also a great time to sort of take stock. Like, what have I not spent time on? What should be a, a more of a priority in my life? Or how can I improve myself? And these are all great ways to just 
increase our happiness, our, our mood, sort of our motivation, our creativity, our productivity, all sorts of things. One of the things you'll hear at an AA meeting is you'll frequently will hear someone say, I'm really grateful for my addiction. And what they mean is that, you know, they were living this unfulfilled, miserable life. Uh, they're just going through the motions like so many people are lonely, yeah. even in a crowd. And when they got to a, a rock bottom, as a lot of people would call it, who don't know much about this, this space, um, is they got, they got to that bottom and then they got help and they got into AA or they got into treatment or they got into some other program. And then they finally learned how to live. And that's how it feels. It's like, I, I guess I would say I'm really grateful that I got that far into addiction because now I understand how to actually live a healthy, well life. And if I had never gone down that addiction road, I'd just be potentially living a kind of mediocre, uninformed life, which isn't the end of the world, but sounds terrible to me. I, all that to say, that was a ramble, but all that to say is I'm grateful for the addiction. I'm grateful for what I had to go through. I'm really glad that I survived it. And now I get to live this really cool life of feeling free and healthy and focusing on what matters as opposed to stupid stuff that I was focused on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much more out there on the other side. And I think any one person that we can reach to convey that is just a huge success. Because I, and that's I, the purpose of this podcast. Like that's if this podcast doesn't ever get downloaded by more than a few people, but one of those people lives a better life because of it. I mean, that's incredible because that'll be we'll get exponential returns out of that because they will go tell a hundred other people, and that's all we're looking for. Absolutely, absolutely. And that kind of leads me to the last question that I normally like to ask: is I think stigma has a lot to do with that. I think a lot of people don't get help because they're afraid or that it's stigmatized or they're not sure what people will think. And, and so I, I see stigma being an issue in the mental health community. I see it being a, an issue in the addiction and recovery community. And I was just kind of wanting to get your opinion on, you know, is stigma important and is it increasing? Is it decreasing? And, you know, like, what could we be doing about it? Such a good question. I, I agree with you that stigma is a huge issue. Uh, it's hard to say whether it's increasing or decreasing. I think it tends to vacillate quite a bit, depending on the field you're in. For example, I think in business, it's becoming less stigmatized to perhaps work on some things on yourself, mainly because we're seeing some of the research come out on how much productivity or creativity you can augment if you become a more self-aware and sort of a better leader, more more soft skills around the office. Changes like that are very, very good to see. I do think that a lot of the stigma might come from sort of thinking that if you have a problem or if you're not very happy, that you need formal mental health care. And I, I think there's a real middle ground here. I think a lot of us struggle. I mean, most of us at some point in our lives statistically will be depressed. And I don't know anyone who's ever had a marriage where they haven't had to work, where they haven't had times where it's been really, really difficult. And you can take that into any relationship, right? Like very hurt by a family or a friend. And so I think it's more stigma around understanding that asking for help doesn't mean that you have, for example, full-fledged depression or full-fledged, you know, 
post-traumatic stress disorder or sort of a level of something that maybe people are more fearful of. And that really normalizing every single one of us can use these skills and these tools. I have to tell you, Stephen, I often, especially lately as I've gotten older, I feel really bad. I feel almost like our field of psychology has all of these amazing tools and we just keep them to ourselves and only share them with people who seek quote unquote therapy. And I'm really starting to think that's just something that's such a travesty because I, I think that offering skills would offset so much of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's 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 a, there's a fine balance somewhere in here around advertising these solutions and providing them to the people who want or need them. You know, it's like in AA we talk about if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you'll take certain steps. And it's interesting because it's a it, it, you'll never see an AA member going out and promoting AA, like uh, go to and going to a bar and recruiting people to stop drinking. Right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's more of like a, if you come in here into these rooms and you realize that we have what you, you want, then we'll show you how to get it. But otherwise, you know, whatever. And I think there's a balance somewhere between that and maybe pushing the solutions or the opportunity. And, and I don't know how we do it. I hope this podcast is one of the solutions. I hope that telling our stories, talking about the science, talking about how to get better will encourage more people to do it. And that's that's my goal and that's my hope. And I think that's probably the most likely way to get the broadest impact and uh, have the broadest impact on the population. Yes. And hopefully more podcasts like this so that people understand that it's just a these are just normal things. We're all human beings and we're all going to struggle with different things at different points in our life. And yeah. Well, look, I, I really appreciate you doing this. I think this is really educational and informative and I think it will shed a lot of light on some of the current situations that everybody's experiencing. And I'm hoping that maybe the mental health impact that everyone's feeling because of COVID-19 will get more people talking about mental health and we'll see more people seeking solutions and getting well. And in the long run, this, 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 there could be some positive benefits from what we're having to go through now. Absolutely. Positive and reduced stigma. This is great what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you do this. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Stephen. So thank you again, Laura, for coming on. Really appreciate you doing this and for your time and for your insights. I think it will be really helpful to a lot of people. There's a lot of stuff mentioned here that we'll link in the show notes for those who are interested and along with her contact information and, and uh, social media profile information, uh, you can connect with the stigma podcast at our website, which is stigmapodcast.com. And I really want to say thank you to the listeners. I mean, without you, there's you know really no reason to be doing this. And so we're grateful to have you. Your support is what makes this possible. If you enjoy our content, we'd really be grateful if you'd like, subscribe, review on your podcast platform of choice. And as we grow our following, we have the ability to bring you more and more interesting mental health content. If you want to reach out to us, you can email us info at stigmapodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at StigmaCast. And until next time, thanks for being here and we look forward to seeing you.